Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Okay, here's a voice you'll recognize to get us rolling this week. We demand at this year's World Economic Forum participants from all companies, banks, institutions and governments immediately halt all investments in fossil fuel exploration and extraction, immediately end all fossil fuel subsidies and immediately and completely divest from fossil fuels. Greta Thunberg, in case you didn't guess, speaking from the distant galaxy that was Davos 2020, when for most of the world Corona was still just a brand of beer. It was quite a spectacle. Presented with the opportunity to address a room stuffed with the world's most influential people, her concrete demand was clear. Divest from fossil fuels. Spoiler alert! That hasn't happened. But it did get us thinking here at House on Fire headquarters. Big finance is so often portrayed as the bad guy. I mean, when was the last time you saw a nice banker in a film? But could it be the good guy? If the world's investors suddenly decided to divest from fossil fuels, that would be a pretty big deal. But what else could they do? If global finance shared Greta's priorities, how many of the world's problems would that solve? To put it simply, can investors save the planet? is still on fire. This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. We have to rise to this occasion. The transition isn't going to be easy. So, can investors save the planet? Globally, there are about $75 trillion of assets under management in a broad industry that includes banks, hedge funds, insurers, pension funds, and other asset managers. That does give investors a lot of power. Basically, there are three big levers they can pull to use that power. Number one, you've got divestment, which is what Greta was calling for in that clip. Basically, pulling their money out of particular companies to try and force them to change destructive behaviors. Number two, you've got investment, choosing to invest in companies that are good for the environment and fuel their growth. And three, engagement, by which I mean using their access to big companies and governments to influence their behavior. And they're doing all three. Greta's not the first activist to focus on the power investors have. Greenpeace wrote a report in 2020 called It's the Finance Sector, Stupid, which specifically named and shamed banks, pension funds and insurers that fund fossil fuel companies. Senior managers I spoke to told me that these kinds of efforts do get noticed. At the same time, there's a lot of uneasiness about disinvestment, even amongst investors who care about the environment, because the argument goes that if you pull your money out of a company that's doing badly on, say, deforestation or emissions, then yes, you make life harder for that company, but you also encourage it to find other investors who are by definition going to be less bothered about these kinds of issues. There's a lot of uneasiness about disinvestment, even amongst investors who care about the environment, because the argument goes that if you pull your money out of a company that's doing badly on, say, deforestation or emissions, then yes, you make life harder for that company, but you also encourage it to find other investors who are by definition going to be less bothered about these kinds of issues. So the overall effect of these efforts can be counterproductive for sustainability. One company that has won the praise of activists is the French insurance giant AXA, which has gone ahead and phased coal entirely out of its business. I spoke to Ulrika Decoen, their group head of comms. I'd assumed the company would be tired of being lobbied by climate campaigners and rights groups, but that wasn't at all the case. 
she told me that actually NGOs add a lot of value to their process, that by challenging them they help inform strategic decisions. And when it comes to coal, they have made some pretty important decisions in recent years. Phasing out coal out of our investments and, and later on uh, from our underwriting activities has been sort of the foundational uh, step for AXA in, uh, in our journey and uh, in, uh, you know, committing ourselves and trying to contribute as much as we could to the, to the fight against, uh, against climate change. Uh, why coal? Because, uh, you know, clearly uh, it, is the far, it is the most in, uh, carbon intensive form of energy. It's still responsible for 45% of energy related CO2 emissions. Uh, and yet it is still the second source of energy used worldwide. So clearly uh, there was, a, there was a, a very clear case there to act. And the way we could act was uh, twofold. Uh, it was first as an investor, because as you know, insurers are uh, large institutional investors, long-term investors we decided to uh, start the phasing out from our investments. So we started this journey in 2015 and we were among the first financial players to do so. Uh, later on in 2017, we decided to do sort of mirror this engagement on the insurance side. Two years later, we went one step further and we strengthened the restrictions by ending new and existing business. So not underwriting new, but also stopping uh, long-standing business we might have in any line of business uh, except employee benefits, because we still want to be able to cover people working for those companies um, with clients developing new coal projects exceeding 300 megawatts uh, of power generation and customers which might have more than 30% of coal share of revenues. In 2019, um, we, we, we announced that by 2030-30, we wanted to be absolutely out of coal, both on the investment and of the insurance side. At the time, Friends of the Earth called this the best policy ever adopted by a financial actor, which is not faint praise. Although Ulrika was keen to emphasize that whilst this decision aligns with what activists want, it's also an access business interest if the company takes climate risk seriously, which being in the insurance business, it does. I think those sort of difficult and very uh, transformative decisions, you can only take them when you, when you manage to align, uh, I would say, business interests with, um, with uh, you know, sort of general interest. Uh, and, and clearly for us, uh, being an insurer, seeing the impact of climate change on, uh, on uh, you know, the protect and, 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 and the sort of global protection gap around climate change widening. Um, so, so we had a clear view that, that not acting on, the, on that front would be an issue at some point for our, from a pure business point of view. And we, we, we stated at that time, our, our former CEO stated in a very, uh, I would say, powerful uh, st statement that a world uh, warming by more than four degrees would probably not be insurable anymore. So let's just recap that. The world would become uninsurable. This is pretty striking stuff. Language you'd expect to hear from a campaign group, not a global insurance conglomerate. And Alrika wasn't only talking about the insurance side of the business, but the investment side too. From a business perspective, they were more and more aware of the investment risks of finding themselves invested in stranded assets. Assets that have taken a big valuation hit. 
Say, for instance, an oil field that has suddenly become unexploitable because of new regulations and is therefore of no value. For instance, way back in 2013, there was a study by HSBC that found that between 40% and 60% of the market value of some major fossil fuel companies could be wiped out because of stranded assets caused by new carbon regulation. So this isn't a new insight, but it does seem to be gaining new traction. These assets are kind of like subprime mortgage debt around 2008. But can investors know about these risks? Typically, companies that are exposed to major climate risks aren't going to be shouting about it from the rooftops, if they're even aware of it. Right now, companies and banks can usually get away without disclosing a lot of information about stuff like this. But investors are getting more interested in having these kinds of data as they become more aware of the risks posed by owning poor environmental performers. The pressure is building. In 2019, Mark Carney, then Governor of the Bank of England no less, suggested that banks should be forced to disclose their risks linked to climate change within the next two years. Now, that hasn't actually happened, but things are on the move. Big groups of investors are getting together to push for more emissions disclosures from companies. I'm told private equity firms are now screening acquisitions for climate-related risks. The problem that investors face is there isn't any one universal agreed way of reporting those risks or environmental performance generally. What you have instead is a whole load of different ways of doing it, as well as different requirements from different governments in different parts of the world. Basically, a big fat mess, which might not be entirely accidental. Here's Jeff McDermott, the managing partner of Nomura Green Tech Capital Advisors. He specializes in sustainable investing. Why are there so many standards around? That's a really good question. One, I think that to a certain extent, it has benefited um, the, 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 the bad actors, the companies that don't want to uh, have to change their business practices, have to change their, uh, their operations to be more sustainable. Um, it has benefited them uh, to have all these diverse standards because they, they can say, well, we're just, you know, we don't know what to report or, or our reporting is vague because the, the standards are not crystal clear. Wow. Now that would be cynical. No comment. But the good news is, again, there are people doing something about this. The World Economic Forum and other actors like Mark Carney's Task Force for Climate Disclosure are pushing hard to institute new standards for companies to use around the globe to report their environmental risks and performance. At the same time, European governments are starting to set timelines for making climate risk disclosures mandatory. Now, these sorts of things might sound dry, but they're actually a really big deal. So going forward, you can't be a fund manager and just say, oh, we're looking at ESG, which you, you could do three years ago, and, and it could be all false and phony. To going forward, if you put that on your marketing materials, if you market that to your investors, you have to follow defined protocols, which are significant, which mean that you are actually allocating investment dollars based on environmental standards. But whereas five years ago, people could say, I'm a green investor, and they could absolutely not be a green investor. There was no standards with which to hold people accountable. So I think that it is absolutely changing. But today, if you want to invest in companies that are focused on environmental good and, and really pushing forward the low-carbon, uh, environmentally sound agenda, <clears throat> you can find the information with which to make investments, and it will become increasingly accurate over the next three to five years. I'll give you an example. You're a big uh, data company. 
what really kind of matters is, you know, one of the big issues is the power that you use for your data centers, which are, you know, highly electricity intensive. You know, is it high carbon or is it renewable? Um, so that standard really matters. If you're a drinks company, actually they don't use so much electricity, but they use a heck of a lot of water. So the question on a drinks company would be, you know, how are they, how much, uh, how efficient are they in their water or how wasteful are they in their water practices? Um, I think we're going to evolve to a place where from an environmental perspective, you'll be able to say, this drinks company is massively wasteful on water, uh, uses a lot of plastic, does not recycle its, its materials, is really environmentally a, a bottom quartile performer versus all drinks companies in the industry. And another drinks company, you might say, wow, they're, they're really, you know, they're fantastic. They're best in class. They're top quartile in terms of these environmental attributes. And then as an investor, you'll have a decision. Do I want to invest in the environmentally damaging company or do I want to invest in the best in class environmental performer in the drinks industry? And I think that's, that's where investor capitalism is really going to change, change everything because, you know, boards, you know, how, how boards work is they think about the long-term future of the company. Once a board starts getting information that their company, their drinks company, to use this example, is in the bottom quartile uh, from an environmental perspective, they're going to ask management, why are we a laggard? Why are we underperforming? And frankly, they're going to basically tie management's compensation to not being at the bottom of the barrel. And management will then quickly put its time and effort into up-tiering the environmental performance of that company. Why? because that's why the board will be paying them. They'll tie the compensation to being at or above the industry peer average on these environmental metrics. So when I say that investor capitalism is necessary to really save the world, it is because, you know, if you take, you know, a, you know whatever it is, seven billion people, and you align their incentives uh, in this way around, you know, standards of living and economic returns and investor capitalism, they will deliver a lot faster than any government mandate or any strict set of rules could do so. That's what I want to hear. A clear answer to my question. Still, in the years before that brave new world of full disclosure comes about, information poverty will remain a problem and investors who want to make the environment part of their decision-making process will have to make do as best they can. But as always, where there's a problem, there's a startup. Meet Rebecca Minghella, founder of Clarity AI, a new company using AI to try to address this information gap for investors of all kinds. Basically, they've built a platform that any investor can subscribe to that aggregates all available information in a user-friendly way. Our mission is uh, bringing societal impact to markets. So basically what we see is that we need to include a social and environmental dimension in any decision-making in the markets. And we decided to start with investors, which are the ones actually moving a significant amount of capital, trillions of dollars um, of capital, uh, and allocating that capital according today mostly to risk and return, right? So what we aim to do is adding a social and environmental impact dimension in the decision-making of First investors and then any society stakeholders, so consumers, governments prioritizing budgets, etc. So we we start allocating capital also 
according to that social and environmental impact dimension. So basically, the way we are uh, trying to solve that problem is, um, first of all, of course, by gathering as much information as possible. Uh, so collecting as much data as possible uh, from different sources uh, around sustainability. And it could be quantitative metrics, so CO2 emissions, water, waste, uh, percentage women, uh, diversity policies, uh, etc. So also qualitative information, so policies, memberships, etc. Uh, it could be uh, real-time data or news, so controversial news. So we've talked about one problem with ethical investing, basically disclosures and lack of information. But here's another huge issue, short-termism. CEOs say that the pressure to deliver short-term returns often still outweighs pressure to not vandalise the environment. This has a lot to do with the time horizon everyone is working to. If everybody was forced to invest on a 50-year time horizon, companies would behave very differently. But a lot of today's investors are barely looking at a 50-day time horizon. Which is the perfect segue to introduce Eric Ries to the podcast. Now, anyone listening to this who's ever done a startup will know this guy. Eric is startup royalty. He's the author of The Lean Startup, which is pretty much the bible for every bright-eyed young team on a startup mission from here to Silicon Valley. But now he's decided to take on exactly this mission, chronic short-termism in public markets. Short-term thinking, short-term orientation, living quarter to quarter, deprives companies of the resources they need, the mindset they need, the culture they need to really do great things. And you can find that from the research literature, or you can just interview any middle manager or board member or executive at any public company you know. If you want to have just the most depressing day ever, you can find one of the last remaining corporate research labs on the planet uh, that you know is owned by a public company, and you can walk the halls. And this is true in academia and other settings too. Uh, but walk the halls, talk to the researchers, and just say, tell me about some of the incredible breakthroughs you've had in this lab. And they will tell you story after story after story of just unbelievable stuff, cures for cancer or you know, possible breakthroughs in energy efficiency, in environmental impact, in you know, new ways to prevent carbon from being emitted into the atmosphere, you name it. And then you say, oh, great. And uh, have, tell me about the, the inventions that you managed to get through the technical validation. That is, you, got, you had the breakthrough in the lab, but were never commercialized. And this is the part of the story where you have to break out your violin for uh, more, you know, really morose music as the person speaks. It's like, oh, yeah, we had this cure for cancer, but we can never get the company interested in commercializing it. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I remember this one, one researcher who had this unbelievable technology that um, you know, had the possibility of making air travel um, uh, take up dramatically less carbon. I'll just I'll leave it at that. And was never commercialized. And if you ask, well, why was this not commercialized? You know, this could have extended human longevity. This could have prevented uh, famines. This could have prevented, you, know, you think about the problems of the world that require technical breakthroughs. And I say, well, why was this product never commercialized? Not a single one would say, um, because we tried to commercialize and the customers didn't want it. They didn't even try. The business unit that had sponsored the research didn't want to commercialize the technology. They felt that it was a conflict with their quarterly goals. They never got around to it. They never had the, you know, it was never a priority. They would never fund it. They never this, they never that. And so um, there's like millions of inventions, unbelievable inventions that are sitting on shelves right now that were never commercialized. And those stories are heartbreaking and absolutely so universal. It, you know, almost every company that is governed quarter to quarter, if there's a bad quarter, if there's a setback, the first projects to go are the R&D projects. We eat the seed corn 
rather than actually make cuts. Eric has been working for a decade now on the long-term stock exchange, an idea so crazily ambitious he's been encouraged by many well-wishers to bury it for the sake of his own credibility. Basically, it's a whole new stock exchange, but one that is specifically designed to discourage trading in favour of long-term investing. And that is a key distinction that I, with my lack of financial world acumen, hadn't really grasped. Almost all of the financial services companies that companies and investors interact with and all the intermediaries and fund managers and asset managers and traders and brokers and there's really an incredible array of entities that make up our capital markets the vast majority of them make the majority of their revenue from trading so we have built the most unbelievably efficient uh, high liquidity marketplace in the world in history for trading 100 share lots of stock and you know obviously everyone's heard uh, increasingly about high frequency trading about um, about the ways in which um, you know the speed of connections has become a really important factor in which trading algorithms are uh, effective and not algorithmic trading, passive investing. There's just been trend after trend after trend that has really emphasized the need for trading. But and I'm not saying that liquidity is bad or even that having efficient markets is bad. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that when you look at it from the point of view of companies and the long-term investors who form you know the base of the pyramid, the the the, the longest-term oriented. Uh, players in the system. You ask yourself, how much do they benefit from all this trading activity? And I know a lot of CEOs that basically feel like if their company is destroyed, but it generates a lot of volatility on the way down, most of their financial partners are going to be perfectly happy with that because they're making money uh, even while the company is losing its soul. So I think that business model conflict, that fundamental focus on trading revenue uh, to the exclusion of other ways of generating value is the heart of the problem that has created this misalignment between the companies that have to create the value by serving customers and all these intermediaries who then divide up that pie into finer and finer slices. Because his book was such a smash hit, Eric went on to spend a lot of time with founders and inside companies. In his view, there's a generation of business leaders now that want to see a different value set in their companies, a value set in which things like protecting the environment are important. The way to get there is this new market paradigm investing for the long term. I know this next generation of founders pretty well. Uh, I have spent a lot of time with these companies, some of them uh, since they were quite small. And I think that the values that they hold are not just surface level. And we have created the world's first national securities exchange that brings together long-term oriented companies and long-term oriented investors to accomplish those values. We are a national securities exchange, so we have the same regulatory rights and responsibilities as the ones you've heard of, like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. We are the first of those exchanges who has attempted to bring a new listings model to market, really since the creation of NASDAQ in the early 70s. And our model is very compatible with the financial system. So we allow companies even to dual list. You can list with us and still have an NYSE uh, listing because, as I said earlier, we're not focused on maximizing our trading volume or trading revenues. But in order to list on LTSE, you have to abide by our listing standards. I think people have forgotten that stock exchanges have historically played this role in setting corporate governance standards as well as uh, facilitating liquidity. So we have standards that require companies to take a multi-stakeholder view, to engage with and reward their long-term shareholders, to um, have board oversight of their long-term strategy, take care of their employees, make investments in human capital, um, have support for uh, diversity and inclusion uh, and sustainability, those kinds of things. 
So you can't be listed on our market unless you uh, make those commitments. And when people make those commitments, they're binding commitments. This is the, the key difference between LTSE and many of the other reforms that have been proposed over the years, you know, pledges and voluntary um, voluntary symbols and, and, and um, seals of approval. When you sign up to the listing standards of an exchange, there are real teeth. There's real enforcement. You have to do it. It's a, it's a long-term commitment that you're making, uh, a structural commitment that you're making on behalf of the company. So for, for founders, for companies, for CEOs, for boards, we always tell them this is a way that you can make promises that the public can believe. And in so doing, you can win the public's trust. And in the 21st century, like, is there really any more valuable commodity than that? And I think we will find out now who's for real and who's not. It's easy to sign a pledge. It's easy to put out a press release. It's easy to say that you stand for something. But um, the public knows the difference between those who are serious and those who are not. And I think this is an opportunity for those of us in this next generation to stand up and be counted and to say, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. Okay. So we've talked about divesting, investing, and by a process of elimination, we're moving on to engagement. My favorite story of this story so here's an investor who really is standing up to be counted, Jan Erik Sagestad, a CEO from Norway and an inspiring example of what we mean. Cast your mind back to the fires in the Amazon that kicked off 2020. If you're anything like me, you'll probably recall your feelings at the time as an unpleasant cocktail of frustration and impotence. But if, like Jan Erik, you'd been in charge of Norway's biggest asset management company, you might have felt differently. Storebrand, which he manages, has nearly a trillion Norwegian krone under management, which gives it some clout. So what does he do? Jan Eric gets busy. He orchestrates a letter to the Brazilian government from 29 investment firms managing $3.7 trillion to demand meetings with Brazilian diplomats and call on President Jair Bolsonaro to stop deforestation. The letter was pretty punchy, so I'm going to quote it. The escalating deforestation in recent years, combined with reports of a dismantling of environmental and human rights policies and enforcement agencies, are creating widespread uncertainty about the conditions for investing in or providing financial services to Brazil. Why did he write it? Well, listen to the man himself. But our motivation um, is, is really to go beyond our dialogue with companies, and in this case, directly and have a dialogue with the government because we need these policies uh, in place and we need a change of uh, direction. And, you know, we made it very clear that uh, uh, the development we've seen of the recent years is not sustainable. And uh, if it continues, uh, the risk of staying invested in Brazil uh, may be too high. As I said, we, we are a long-term investor um, and um, we want to be a successful investor. And we also want to be a successful investor uh, in Brazil. Um, that is our starting point. Um, but clearly to have successful investments, we need successful companies. Uh, and for companies to be successful, there needs to be a sustainable regulatory framework. Uh, there needs to be an enforcement of policies like the forest code, for instance, in the Brazil case, that levels the playing fields and actually makes it profitable to operate in a responsible fashion. Mm. Um, so uh, that is our starting point. Uh, and um, 
when it comes to deforestation, it, it's important when you look at, of course, the climate risk. Uh, it's important when you look at the biodiversity uh, risk and, and the, the, the value of the ecosystems. Uh, and it's important when you look at more the social dimension and, and uh, you know, the rights and, and respect of the indigenous uh, people. Uh, so deforestation is a very broad uh, issue and, and it sort of comes back to my point that it's in many cases you need a holistic approach where you look at both the E, the S and the D together. ESG, meaning environmental, social and governance. So how did all this go down with the government? Well, I must say the the response was uh, uh, overwhelming uh, uh, in the sense that um, this, we got a quite an immediate response uh, from the government. Uh, we had a, a dialogue directly with the vice president and, and ministers, uh, with the government, with the Congress. In the end, it's the action on the ground that counts. Um, there, there is a decent transparency when it comes to monitoring deforestation and monitoring fires. Um, and the recent numbers are not encouraging, um, but clearly we made it clear that it, it's, it's the outcome uh, that really counts and that will, is what we will be looking for. Unless we see a, a, a change in policies and, and uh, a change in deforestation rates, uh, we do believe that uh, the risks of staying invested uh, will increase uh, and at one point be uh, untenable. Inevitably, this all provoked some hostility in Brazil, but it also stirred things up for the government. Jan Eric told me that since this all happened, a group of big Brazilian companies, along with ex-central bankers and finance ministers, have been speaking out and putting pressure on the government over deforestation. As Jan Eric has been doing this for a while, I couldn't let him go without asking him how the landscape is changing in the responsible investment world. Initially, uh, the focus was what you wanted to avoid investing in. Uh, increasingly, uh, there has been a focus on investing more in solutions, companies with products or services that provide solutions, whether it's uh, with respect to environment uh, or other uh, items covered by the SDGs. Uh, of course, engagement uh, is increasingly uh, also uh, an important tool uh, in order to improve maybe uh, the majority of, of companies. And uh, among investors and among uh, both uh, uh, wealth clients and institutional clients, uh, there's been a significant shift uh, when it comes to uh, the interest in uh, and requirements to uh, in, invest in, in a sustainable fashion. I clearly think that capital uh, matters, but again, it, it's really the interaction between investors, companies and governments uh, where we can really create uh, uh, change. We do cooperate with, uh, with NGOs uh, and we get valuable insights and, and the data from the ground from NGOs. Uh, so I think it's the whole uh, ecosystem where everybody plays a part in, in creating uh, a positive change. Uh, but yes, uh, money talks. Indeed it does. 
And that seems like a pretty good place for us to end this week. Can investors save the planet? There's evidence that they can, and that many of them are trying hard. Though, as with anything truly world-changing, it'll take time to get all the vital players on board. And if you're an investor, that could mean you. Here's Jeff one more time. It is accessible to you to find managers who are focused on this and do, and allocating this. And if you've got your 401k or your pension plan or you've got some savings that you want to invest in, let's say you, you, don't want to, you don't like the stock market and the volatility, you just want to invest in fixed income securities, there are green bonds. There are bonds which, where the, the money that the company raises is used solely for green purposes. And you know the, 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 company is, the, the company still owes the money back. I mean, the company is going to pay the money no matter what, but the, the, the use of proceeds is for sustainability. And there have been, that, that market has like doubled this year. From, from where it was last year in terms of the number of companies pursuing this now. So I think you absolutely, as an individual investor with a little bit of homework, can find uh, fund managers or uh, individual, uh, you know, yeah, fund managers on bonds and equities that are pursuing this. I, I, I think it is a little bit more difficult if you're an individual and you want to buy, you know, invest in one stock or one bond uh, of a green company. Um, you know, that's fraught with more risk. If you're a professional investor or, or you, you, you're comfortable with it, sure, you can absolutely do that. That's a wrap from us for this week, then. Next week, we'll be talking about the future of meat. Specifically, as the number of animal-free alternatives to meat starts to skyrocket, does traditional meat even have a future? Please join us. And until then, farewell. <laughs>